Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Lisa and Stephen. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with me today. Um, I reached out to both of you. This is sort of a, a go off the grid, uh, not follow the usual rules, but I reached out to the two of you because I'm working on a particular writing project that I wanted to get your input on and get your thoughts um, I really wanted to let the two of you sort of interact. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, and uh, I reached out and said, hey, can I put some of this theory in front of you and uh, and then let each one of you reflect and comment and um, and reflect on each other's comments. Um, but before we dive into that, why don't we just ask you to introduce yourself in normal format? Uh, how about we start with you, Lisa? You're a familiar voice. You've been here before. Um, how about we let you introduce yourself first? Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, so I am Lisa Greer. I live in Los Angeles, and I, um, for the last two-ish years, uh, after my book came out, my book called Philanthropy Revolution, I have been acting really as the voice of the donor because donors don't talk uh, in this crazy land uh, of fundraising and nonprofits. And I started off as a major donor, coming from business and uh, um, and being a uh, serial entrepreneur. And uh, which Stephen and I have in common, uh, but we um, uh, found out very quickly that that well that the the sector was run in a way that seemed arcane is the nice word for it. So that's what I do. Yes, Lisa, you and I have developed a friendship, and uh, and I'm 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 looking forward to continued collaboration. So Stephen, you've been on the podcast as well. How about you introduce yourself again? 
Yeah, great to be here, Jason. I'm Stephen. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, and I have the privilege of leading Charity Vest. And we are a financial technology venture to address the future of donor advised funds. We bring brilliant, modern technology to the world of donor advised funds, making them simple, clean, and more capable. And we have a particular focus on the millennial generation and thinking about um, tech employees and kind of the folks that are generating the new wealth that'll kind of be the philanthropy over the next 30 years. Yeah. So Stephen, Stephen, you and Lisa uh, both have an interest in donor advised funds. And, uh, and the reason I, and for that reason, um, Stephen, you've been, you and I had a conversation. I don't know. It's probably been 12, 18 months. We were probably right in the thick of the pandemic when you and I talked about this. I think I even remember the title. It was something along the lines of, you know, our donor advised funds, really the big boogie monster that we're making them all out to be. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. And, uh, and then Lisa, you in your book, uh, which I've become a great fan of and referenced and, and talked about a lot. And a lot of my listeners have referenced it. Um, you talk a lot about donor advice funds in the, uh, in the book. So, uh, I thought, um, as two, as three individuals who have vested interest in the fundraising space, I thought this would be a very helpful conversation. What I want to sort of tee up the conversation with is this idea that, um, uh, uh, Viviana, uh, Zelsler uh, is a professor at uh, at Princeton, and she wrote a book a number of years ago. I shared this with the two of you. She wrote a book a number of years ago called "The Social Meaning of Money." And in the social in the social meaning of money, she introduces this com this concept of earmarking. And earmarking is a was not a familiar concept to me, but it's basically the idea that human beings have a tendency to um, whereas we like to think of money as sort of being uh, very much oriented towards the marketplace um, and very much a tool of commerce uh, what what uh, she talks about in her book is that we actually have a hab- have habits and we do this in a variety of ways of earmarking monies for uh, social purposes outside the market so we all know that we have our the monies that we earn or you know keep and account for in various different ways to pay the mortgage and do the various different you know buy dinner and all those feeds our feed our families and stuff. Um, but that there's actually this earmarking behavior. And, and, and what I, what I thought we could talk about today, Lisa and Steven is this idea that I think donor advised funds perhaps are an example of what the donor might be demonstrating. There's a lot of criticism about donor advised funds. And I think we're sort of missing the, perhaps the symbolism behind donor advised funds. And I, and I'm suggesting that perhaps Donors are earmarking money, uh, or, or I use the term in the forthcoming book, the idea of reserving money for these social purposes. And perhaps what we're looking at is, is, is the attractiveness of donor advice fund is actually a useful tool for earmarking uh, charitable dollars. Uh, and, and perhaps they're going to sit there in reserve until organizations sort of demonstrate a willingness to take the donor seriously. So that's kind of my theory in a nutshell. It's, 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 I've summed it up in much broader forms in six or 7,000 words in that particular chapter. But, um, let's hear your thoughts. Uh, Stephen, you're the, you're like the, you're the donor advised fund guru, I would call, or we are you, you've been, you've spoken on this subject. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't know about Guru, but certainly this is our world. And what I can say from you know my front row seat is donors are clearly expressing a preference. More and more money in the charitable world is shifting into donor advice funds, which does, as you say, Jason, allow people to 
put money in reserve. They're wanting the ability to make a decision about which charity to support in the future. And they're expressing some amount of value in doing that. And we can go into all of the tax implications and kind of different behavioral reasons why people want to do that. But the fundamental thing is there is value in delaying that decision. I think we can ask the question why, and I think your marking as a concept um, is really powerful to explain you know, a lot or all of that preference for people to put that decision about which uh, charitable organization they want to support in the future. And we can go into more detail on this, but I would certainly argue that that is a feature and not a bug to use technology language of, you know, uh, this, this process that this is going to be a net win for charitable organizations down the line if they do things right and uh, work closely with donors. We can kind of unpack that as we go along. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, uh, Stephen. So as I've been reading, uh, Zelsner's work, one of the things that has occurred to me is that we have historically very notoriously used the tax advantages of charitable giving as sort of a, we've approached it like it's a marketplace transaction. We've sold that to our donors. And that's that's exactly what this author is getting at, is the idea that we earmark monies for purposes outside of commerce, outside of buying and selling. And so in in essence, the the donor advised fund has come in and said we're going to sort of we're going to remove the donors. You know, th- that's not going to be the motivation for which the charitable gift is is now going to be exchanged with the charitable organization. What do you think, Lisa? You you hear what I'm talking about? I do. Um, so a couple things. One is uh, the way that it, both of you were talking about it. It just occurred to me to have kind of a new name for donor advised fund, which maybe you've already thought of. Uh, which is, it's sort of like a charitable, uh, yeah, I guess social, but let's call it a charitable savings account. Um, yeah. Because people in the past, when people had lots of savings accounts, I think some people still have them sort of, but it, it, you know, that are in cash, that you're not, that are part of a portfolio, that you're not really managing. You would put your money in the bank and you would say, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of my kids who just sort of started working and they're, they're teenagers now. And so they're trying their whole thing. And when you start working is, gee, let me put it in the savings account and see how fast it grows. So I think that's doing that in a donor advised fund environment makes tons of sense in every way that I can think of it, with the only downside being the naysayers who think that donor advised funds are the boogeyman. But um, other than that, I think that uh, I think that maybe having it marketed even more um as, as this sort of like a savings account, maybe that will take away some of the uh, uh, fear that people have about donor advice funds. And there'll actually be more money going into them, which I know makes a lot of the pundits say, uh, you know, oh, my gosh, we can't possibly do that. But I, I totally uh, agree with Stephen that, that it, 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 this is something that's growing. And I think the more people that know about it, the better. Um, I am not saying that people should go into it with a different purpose, i.e., Oh, I want to put it so it doesn't get in the hands of charities. Yes. That's, I don't think any of us would ever agree with that. Uh, and I also don't think that if it's to and from foundations, which I didn't even know until the, uh, the Grassley King Act, the you know, paperwork came out, uh, bill that, uh, that that was even done. That's not okay. So, so I think that there are things that people do with donor advice funds, just like they do with any other marketplace or any other form of commerce or whatever. Uh, that aren't uh, okay, but in general, the the, the actual vehicle uh, and the way that it was created uh, makes actually even, even though it was was created a long time ago and it was mostly used in, in this form in the seventies, 
uh, we started there, but I think that it's pretty much what it should be uh, with a few, it maybe needs a, you know, a, a little, a few alterations. So, I, yeah. I think Lisa to sort of further qualify, I, I think what this, this theory would sort of suggest to sort of take your example of the, uh, of the savings account a little further is that her explanation would be that her explanation would be similar to the way that we use savings account. There's a particular type of savings account that we use for children's education. What are those called? Um, uh, the nine, um, yeah, 529. 529s. So 529 plans, and this actually occurred to me as I was, as I was reading through her book, 529 plans are like that savings account, Lisa, that you're describing, but they're, but they're five, but the 529 is actually, it's a, it's money that's being held in reserve for a particular relationship that you have, not for your benefit, but for the benefit of someone you love, right? For a child. And that's essentially what her theory is basically arguing is, is that you have this savings account, but it's being put in reserve for a relation, a particular type of relationship. And I just, I just, I want to take a back seat now for a little while, but I just don't see us talking about donor advised funds in this way. And I thought the two of you could really sort of just put some more meat on the bone about whether there's some validity to what I'm thinking here. I I think that um, for, for the fundraisers that are hearing this, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm guessing some of them are cringing um, about that, about, you know, because their job, the way that fundraising set up, and this is, I'm not going to go into this because this is what the book's about, whatever, but, but the way it's set up is, is go get some money, you know, as a board says, or, or an executive director says to a fundraiser, go get some money, bring me back a check, which is already an arcane thing to say, but that's what they say. And so the concept of letting somebody have it in a donor advised fund slash savings account is um, I think what is going to freak people out, um, and I, I think that's if that's the way it has to be, that's the way it has to be. But but the you know it, it's sort of interesting because if you look at fundraising as a long term game, it actually is the best thing you could possibly do. I think it's fantastic. But if you look, because then you're not you're not saying, oh, I have to spend this this year, so I'm going to go give it to some charities that I haven't really checked out. So you don't want to do that. Uh, but if you look at if you look at donor advised funds, or if you look at fundraising in general as a short term game, then you're not going to like a donor advised fund. I don't know, Stephen. What do you think? Yeah, where I'd weigh in on this is just from practical experience of talking to a lot of our donors, especially ones that you know fundraisers would be. Um, would love to have as prime targets folks with large balances that have kind of long-term uh, thinking in in their balance and how they're thinking about their balance. None of them are sitting there thinking, gosh, I am just delighted to have this sit here for the next 10 years or 20 years. They're not thinking that way. When you ask them about their balance and kind of their charitable plans, they immediately start to talk about the charities that they would like to work with. So it's very clear to us as the donor advice fund sponsor that the what's lacking is not the world of options or sort of lack of donor advice fund functionality in, in getting the money out the door. It's really relationships that inspire them and touch them in a material way. That's what they're wanting. And that 99% of the time, when we ask them, why aren't you giving more? They talk about the lack, a void that they wish was filled with a charity that they had a 
good relationship with that inspired them. And so I think that can be a point of encouragement for fundraisers of like, they donor advice fund donors will move material money uh, when, and we've seen it happen. I mean, I've seen donors uh, issue very large gifts um, because of relationships they've developed out of their donor advice fund. They're not ambitious about it sitting there for the sake of sitting. Right. And I think, I do think, and this is a problem that I have not found the answer for yet. Maybe one of the two of you or both of you have the answer uh, that, that, you know, on, on one hand, having had a donor advice fund since I started um, giving, uh, I expected at the very beginning that, and, and they send you a questionnaire, at least the, the donor advice fund program, the sponsor that I was working with, uh, that says, what are your interests? And you know, tell us about your interests. It's part of the paperwork that comes. And so I naively thought, well, I've given them my interests and the money is in this account. Surely they're going to put things in front of me that and, and see what I'm interested in. They're going to say, hey, guess what? We just, you know, here's the top three, uh, you know, you want to do local work with children. Here's the top three organizations. Um, and these two are doing something really, really cool. And you should check them out and make an introduction. That was my naivete to think that that would happen. And I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised if other people think the same thing. So on one hand, yes, they want to know. I think these donors would like to know about what's available, but they also don't want to be barraged with snail mail and phone calls from people that don't relate to anything they do. And then, of course, from a fundraiser perspective, and this is this is a big question, from a fundraiser perspective, the, um, the, the fundraisers don't know the names of a lot of people that don't advise funds. And so by virtue of them being, those names being anonymous, I, and, and which they are not all anonymous by any stretch, but, but but thinking they're anonymous, I think has started this idea that donor advised funds are somehow sneaky or bad or or whatever it is. But it would be great if we could solve kind of that dual problem about you know exposing donors to the areas that they're interested in and also keeping them from uh, giving them some sort of connection to fundraisers, but at the same time not making them put themselves in a place where they're going to get overwhelmed with uh, solicitations. Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things that that we've uh, picked up on as we've thought about this very problem, Lisa, like should we start putting charitable opportunities in front of our donors? And if so, how? Um, we know there are a lot of bad ways to do it. And, and so that makes you a little bit uh, thoughtful and careful about how you might enter this space. But one of the things that we've, uh, broadly explored are the category of giving collaborations, some, you know, giving circles, um, you know, expert driven portfolios of somebody who's like an expert grant maker that people can opt into joining. And as we've talked to folks that have done similar projects, one of the interesting things that emerged from that exploration is that most of the donors, the value that they say that they're getting out of participating in those types of collaborations is not actually the resource deployment. It's sourcing charitable opportunities. They find it a good way to find cool things that they might be passionate about. And then they actually engage those opportunities in parallel separately and sometimes make much, much larger gifts than they would otherwise in sort of the collaborative mode. So I thought that was an interesting insight that, um, that donors are really looking for rich interactions that are thoughtfully, tastefully sourced. And a lot of times curators or peers, best of all, are the best sources of that. Right. See, and, I think and, if you and, listen, 
See, if I think if you listen to what Stephen just said from a practical standpoint, as a guy who's administrating donor advised funds for a growing number of people, and then you reflect back on your book, Lisa, and the way that you were sort of describing your expectations of the relationship in a very sincere and honest and transparent sort of way, you were conveying and, and talking about the use, you know, saying that these donor advised funds could become problematic not for the purpose that they're the necessarily a boogeyman, but because people are wanting that genuine, authentic relationship. We've got these pools of places to put money. The two of you are both basically talking about the same sort of thing through two different sort of lenses. I'm looking at it from a fundraising standpoint. I think we're getting a better, I think we got a, the wrong read on this. Yeah, why, I, why I, are you saying you think it's wrong? What do you think is wrong? You think, no, I don't think we. I think the three of us. I think that I think some of the criticism. I think some of our fundraising colleagues. Yes, yes. Let me clarify that. I th I think some of the criticism that is being thrown at. My thinking is is that the if if it wasn't a donor if it wasn't a donor advised fund something else would be in its place, right? And I, I think that's right because it's. We're all smart people. We're going to design these things. We're going to pass legislation, et cetera, et cetera. So, so change the laws, whatever you want to do. But I think we're missing the symbolic, relational, social element of this that you wrote about in your book and you're describing in very practical terms, Stephen. Yeah, I, I think I think that's I think that's right, and that. Um, I think people do, like Stephen's saying, I do think relationships, and this is what my kind of think one of the key things in my whole book is, uh, is that that you have to have you you have to have a relationship with your donor. Donors crave relationships of any kind. I mean, they even they just want someone to recognize that I'm an individual as a donor, as opposed to oh, the cat, you know, our our wealth engine stuff says X Y Z, therefore we're treating you and the other people as this thing, and therefore you must like this or you must be expecting this, and then. It, it's kind of like a emotional response. This is another reason I think people people money sits in donor advised funds um, as long as it does is is that if you feel accosted and you feel like you're not looked at as a human being and you feel like if you dip your toe in the water somebody is going to bite you um, and and they're going to say give me give me give me give me it's an icky feeling and you want to curl up in a little ball in the corner. And I think the curling up in a ball in the corner is putting your money, leaving your money in a donor advised fund, not forever, but until you can get over the, that feeling that, oh my gosh, fundraising is really, you know, for my kids term yucky and uh, enough fundraising, excuse me, giving is yucky. And I, I think that that's a real conundrum for us because this, there's this idea of, well, it's invisible, therefore it must be bad. So, so we as fundraisers are, are just going to be angry about donor advised funds. But at the same time, they are missing the point, like you, like you said, that that donors crave relationships. And by the way, I kind of wanted a relationship with my donor advice fund, too, which is why I ended up starting a new donor advice fund sponsorship program. And we actually have tried out and Stephen and I can talk about it later, but we've tried out uh, giving suggestions for places to uh, give money right on your, well, in a regular newsletter and also right on your, your page of your donor advice fund profile when you're looking online. And, and in this case, it was done as sort of a group thing in that you don't have to find a group to, to give with, but all of them have been our organizations that somebody else who has a donor advice fund or in their case, other staff at the office have given to and vetted. And then 
And then it's like, oh, okay, maybe I will go after some of those. And I think we can do more of that and even go further with it. Stephen, 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 when you were on the podcast with me, one of the things we talked about was sort of the universal, the universal sort of use of this tool. So this tool, uh, you know, Lisa, Lisa unashamedly introduces herself in her book is is part of the one percent, and so the assumption is is that, and a lot of the criticism that's uh, directed towards these tools like foundations is that they're a tool for the wealthy. But a lot of what you and I originally talked about is is that organizations like yours are going to make this this resource more and more accessible which is going to allow and 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 Lisa you, you sort of know where I'm going with this this is going to allow the donor who's routinely receiving what I would consider very consumer like appeals in their mailbox and that sort of stuff to sort of slow down those impulses and become far more deliberate and intentional with their giving and this could be somebody, I think, Stephen, you know, if I'm if I recall that conversation correctly, this could be somebody who's giving, you know, just a couple thousand dollars a year away to charity very easily. Uh, we're not talking about somebody who's giving away large six and seven figure gifts every year. Am I right, Stephen? That's exactly right. One of the things that we want to do is to use a buzzword, democratize the donor advice fund. We want to modernize and democratize and make them available for literally anyone. And so we of course want to push the capabilities of donor advice fund to a more robust space for the ultra high net worth donor. But we also want to make the $1,000, $100 a year donor addressable too for the broader world of donor advice funds. And right now they're just frankly not addressed for lots of reasons. And part of what you're picking up on, Jason, is you know we believe that people don't give because it doesn't feel purposeful. Like that they're they're not seeing the value in kind of more plain language. And I think if we can, there's some data to back this up. If we can convince people, here's an account, give into this account. You don't have to decide right this moment which charity you want to support, but just commit to the idea of giving. Would you like to be a more giving person? Take a purposeful and intentional step yep. Yep. toward doing that. And there's some data to back this up. A group called Ideas 42 did a study that was a pretty broad study where they presented people charities to give to. Of like, and then they asked them, uh, do, do they want to give? And then the the other test group was they just said, would you like to give? And then they presented the charities after they got that answer. And the response rates were almost 20% higher. If they just ask the idea, would you like to give to charity before they put the specific lists uh, of charities in front of people? And it's just a broad indicator that giving participation has more headroom in a world where donor advised funds is the first ask and the charity is the second ask. We think we can grow the pie through the world of donor advised funds. And in that case, of course, all, all boats rise. And as any astute fundraiser will know, giving participation has been dropping for the last few years in the United States. And, you know, we think donor advice funds have, you know, a role to play in that. Yeah. I think when you, if, if you kind of listen to the, if you kind of listen to the story that's playing out between this woman's theories and the two of you and the roles you play, you kind of see this. Um, it's kind of like the conversation, uh, Lisa, you and I were a part of yesterday about direct response and direct mail. It's, it's not, it's, it's just the, 
direct mail sort of very momentarily in that moment gives you that warm glow, right? It just makes you feel generous for a few minutes. You put that in the mail, the experience is over with. And Stephen, what you're describing and Lisa, what you describe in your book is a level of intentionality and a desire for that experience of generosity to be much more sustainable and to be more rich and true to that relationship. Am I right, Lisa? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's, it, I mean, that's what everybody, I think that's human nature. I think people want, again, to be seen as individuals. They want to be, you know, talked to as a partner with a, with, with somebody who's uh, representing a nonprofit. And I know that sounds crazy to people. Like, how can I partner with a rich person? Because there was weird things. So I, that's, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing is to say, look, we're regular people. Most of us are regular people. And that's what we want. And we want to know, like, you know, what is it doing and how is it doing and that kind of thing. And we want to feel, you know, there's all of this research done about how uh, uh, giving actually charitable people actually live longer. And there's lots and lots of research on that. So, you know, it's it's a healthy thing to do. That's what we want to do. So don't make it difficult for us. And unfortunately, the people, because I think of this, this within a nonprofit pressure that people have to to get the money, get the money, get the money really quickly. It's 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 that's it's contradictory to what people actually really want. And if we could solve that, then more people would probably get. I think they would definitely give. What do you think, Stephen? Tell us some more. Yeah, I, I think to Lisa's point, the the scary part to think about is a world without donor advice funds. There's not been any research on the counterfactual of like what would have happened over the last 20 years in particular. Um, the King Grassley bill, as she alluded to earlier, has provoked a lot of uh, discussion about kind of what, what are, what's the net effect that donor advice funds are, are having. I think the question needs to be asked, like wh- what if they hadn't existed and what would the numbers look like only because um, I think the counter to donor advice funds is that people don't give. That that's the scary world that I sort of have nightmares about, and also the opportunity that I see in front of us as we grow the pie of donor advice funds or charitable savings accounts, as we've talked about, is that uh, folks, you know, if if it's thinking about what what am I participating in, what am I committing my dollars to, unless they believe in something in the future. Unless they can see, like have a sense that hey, this is going to be meaningful in the future, uh, they're not going to set aside their dollars. And I think that's the power of a donor advice fund is it gives them a runway into the future to figure it that they can trust. Like I'm going to find something really purposeful with this money. And if you take that future away and you're asking them to make a binary choice right now, you're selling your business right now. Make a choice. Uh, that is a really tough thing and people will probably just pay the taxes and, you know, um, grow their net worth a little bit more. So that's kind of the, the thing for me as I think about, like, I think the really charitable participation is really what's at stake, um, in a lot of this. And, and I think that's a, in the depth of the relationship too, as, as Lisa was talking about, or I think donor advice funds can be a tool in both of those regards. So I have a question and a bit of a statement. One is, I don't want to discuss donor advised funds without saying the following, because we are entering the fourth quarter. And uh, I, I, I think maybe maybe all of us need to say that, and, and our opinions of, do people, do, do, 
do people give at the end of the year when they have a donor advised fund? Because people call me all the time and say, it's the end of the year. And they all know I have a donor advised fund and it doesn't matter. And they can't, I'm going to go through this again, starting, I don't know, October 30th, when everybody starts calling. And, and it's, I, I don't know, maybe we need to change the name of it or have an AKA something else because people just freak out when they hear about it. And so I have a, um, I have a, a plan that I've suggested a lot of my presentations that because donor advised funds, there are organizations like Stephen's organization and, and some others that don't have minimums. Some don't have minimums. Some don't have minimum, you know, gifts. I want every single nonprofit owner to just start a donor advised fund for 50 bucks or a hundred dollars for each right. one of their staff and make them make a gift and make them go through it. They can, they can try and, you know, pitch to each other, uh, something like that. So they can see that it's, 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 it's really a fairly simple thing. And it doesn't have a lot to do with taxes other than that's what happens at the beginning. But maybe if we did that, then maybe I wouldn't get all these phone calls at the end of the year saying, give me money. And maybe they would call me second or third quarter when they really need the money. If once they actually understand that the tax thing isn't meaningful to me anymore. Sorry, off my soapbox. Yeah, that's what they're, so that's, that's, so that's, that's some of what I, I'm articulating in these, the, some of this writing project, Lisa, is the idea that when we start seeing fundraising practices move away from sort of this consumer orientation, this orientation that we're hinging all of our thinking on the marketplace, we start realizing that the tax advantages that you're selling them or the, um, the warm glow that you're selling them or do this in a very time, you know, urgency before Christmas sort of thing. When you start taking away all those consumer assumptions and you start seeing your donors in a more through a more social lens, like what the author in this book is talking about, um, earmarking is not a market behavior. Earmarking is that money that we reserve for more socially for socially oriented purposes. Um, and I think the fundraising world has got to sort of wake up to the idea that people use money in different ways that don't line up with necessarily our marketplace behavior. Stephen, I'm guessing that you're not assuming that the donor who's necessarily coming to work with you and your firm, you know, your, your, your company, I don't know that you're seeing them as a consumer necessarily when you think about what they're going to do with their charitable gifts. Am I right? Yeah, it's a, you know, multifaceted, um, you know, kind of lens through which we look at our donors and, part of the dynamic is, is we actually don't know what they're ultimately going to do. What I mean by that is we might have a donor this year, give a hundred dollars and then next year they give a hundred thousand. And we, we don't, there's no way to predict that. Certainly there's uh, correlations, but, um, but we see that type of behavior all the time that like the, we can pull them in with a relationship and I'm sure there's a lot of analogs to fundraising where we build trust with them. They really like what we're doing. And then down the line, we're, you know, the downstream beneficiary of circumstances in their life. Um, or, you know, delightfully, this is like kind of the win of the win is like, they tell us because of charity best, they changed their giving behavior. They went from a hundred dollar, you know, a year donor to a thousand dollar a month donor. That is the stuff that gets us super excited. And it does happen. Um, and that's what, you know, where they feel comfortable enough to commit dollars into an account um, because we exist. So that's what gets us really excited. So I just love that we have in, in that what you just said, we have $100 donor 
and fundraise and, and getting really excited in the same kind of paragraph because most people don't treat hundred dollar donors as if they there's much of a chance at all that they're going to give a hundred thousand the next year or even a thousand the next year or a thousand a month. And I think that should be a lesson learned for everybody in this sector that that those hundred dollar donors, I mean, why would you not dip your toe in the water first? Or how do you know that I, you know, my, they're starting to talk about selling my business, but it's not going to be till next year. But maybe I'll try out fundraising for you know, fundraising, try out giving for a little bit now, and I'll do a hundred here and a hundred there and see what happens. And yet on the other side, the organizations think, well, this is just a hundred dollar donor. And 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 then then there's not a great experience for the donor. And then when they get their money, they're saying, I'm not sure what to do with this now. So it's it's a little bit of a conundrum. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the lesson for all of us is like um, when we can serve donors well, like serve them well and build that relationship. And obviously we need to make prudent investments of where we allocate our time and attention, but um, creating systems and structures that serve all donors well, at least at a baseline and builds trust with them um, is something that I think we can all take away. And certainly we're, we're trying to get better at Every day, because it because it really does matter. So a lot of this um, in the world of charitable capital is a trust game. Even for us as an institution, we need to project that we're going to serve them well. Um, and then part of that is encouraging their inspiration. That is much more bleeds over into the charitable side that we've been talking about. Of like inspiration, in my opinion, is like the biggest lever on donor behavior. And here's why I'm excited about the fundraising side of this conversation as a donor advice fund sponsor. So, yeah. you know, the to, to our previous discussion, Jason, what donor advice funds often get accused of is like, we make money on money sitting with us. We want money to sit with us forever. And I'm sure there are donor advice fund sponsors out there that think like that. However, as one of them, I don't want to sort of subscribe to that school of thought because I think the donor potential that is untapped is so much bigger than whatever might be sitting with me at a given time that I want that donor to be so inspired that they clear out their entire balance because I know what comes after that is probably five times larger. And like, so mm -hmm. for me, I want my donors, our donors to have dynamic, incredible relationships with the charities that they are supporting. And we want to encourage that. And we're thinking through systematic ways to encourage much more of that on charity best and especially not to get in the way. But I, I want to encourage that period paragraph all the way, dial that to the max because that is going to be the game changer. And as a philanthropic advisor before starting this, I saw that with donors that I worked with. It was the ones that were most engaged and most inspired that gave the greatest percentage of their net worth. Always. It, it just was. Stephen, one of the things that sort of occurs to me when we talk about the idea of democratizing this, this platform, this, this tool, I, I remember when I, you know, right after college, newly married, had not, you know, we weren't even thinking about buying our first home and so forth. And, um, but I had taken enough like finance classes and I'd gotten my head into the stock market and I was, you know, this is this is around the time when platforms like E-Trade and these these basically these stock market tools where you could basically, you know, the accessibility of the stock market sort of happened around the same time when I actually had a little bit of margin um, in my early 20s where I could actually do that. 
And I think that's sort of along the lines of what we're t- some of what we're talking about here is just the practicality of enterprises like yours making things like this more accessible to people who are who could be just talking about setting aside a couple hundred dollars a month and 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 then and then and and that totally changes the game with when it comes to everything that I what we we traditionally in our consultancy refer to what we call lane one fundraising it changes the game when I'm on a monthly basis sending a couple hundred dollars to my donor advised fund and not participating in the traditional this consumer like giving that lands in my mailbox or you know with the special events that I attend to am I am you, you follow what I'm saying Stephen yeah. I, I think so. And we and we hear it anecdotally from our donors. I was interviewing one just a couple of weeks ago and he was telling me that he and his wife started just setting aside, you know, money every month in their charity best account. And he said it completely changed how they interacted with charities, knowing yes. that they had money set aside that like, and here's what got me excited. He was like, we never talked about giving, but for, but here, like when we got, you know, um, solicited, you know, asked by a charity or in a charitable event at their kid's school or whatever it was came up, he's like, because we have the money sitting in an account, we, now we talk about it. We say, Hey, should we give something to this organization? Whereas like, because the money wasn't there before they, it wasn't even a conversation. So it's just cool that because the money exists, because they've already committed, now they're having net new conversations about what they're passionate about and like what they think is going to create impact on the world, the relationships that downstream of you know, who they're excited about supporting and want to back. It, it's, it's neat. And, and of course, his reflection on all of this is like, it's made my life richer. Thank you. Uh, which was so cool and shared it with the whole team uh, just because it was such a neat interaction of like, this has enriched my life just because now we have conversations and relationships that we didn't. Uh, and, and just, this is a case of a donor who actually, um, in the grand scheme of things, probably isn't going to give that much more, but the quality of his giving because of the way that he had behaviorally structured it, having a giving account changed so much. So that gets us excited as well. So I think the commitment side of this, of like setting it aside is super important. It does change behavior down the line. So, so Lisa, I, th- I think you know where I'm going with this. Lisa, think about the or- think about some of the organizations that you and I would sort of be talking about that are landing in our mailbox and expecting on the on maybe the higher end, you know, uh, five uh, you know five hundred dollars a couple hundred couple couple times a year, for example. If that same donor is deliberately, as Stephen is describing, putting five hundred dollars a month in a donor advised fund. Regardless of whether they do it at the end of the year, whenever the hell they choose to do it, you know, that's $6,000 all of a sudden puts the average middle income donor, right, in the essentially what is for a lot of organizations that major donor category. They don't have to be in the, uh, you know, the 1% category with Lisa and her husband. That's just an average middle class donor who's putting $500 a month in, a, in essentially the equivalent of a savings account. Am I right, Lisa? You are, but uh, here's here's a kind of a funny thing. I have had an incredibly difficult time convincing fundraisers who I've spoken to in, in group, large groups uh, that giving five hundred dollars a month 
a donor who gives $500 on a regular basis, either to, you know, in a, in a, uh, um, putting it into a, a donor advice fund or, or just directly to a nonprofit. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, but as somebody who gives, we say this person's a giver or not, they, $500 a month, uh, you know, and you've, and you've got $6,000 a year, right? And so, and the, the research says that something close to 90% of those people will continue giving. That's just becomes part of their regular thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the person who gives, let's say $6,000 once or $1,000 once is much, 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 much less likely, you know, more in the 20% category to give the next year, as we all know. And the people who give every month or put money in a donor advice fund every month are also more likely to make a large gift when they can. Yeah, and, right. and I love what, what Stephen said about the account just being open and, and having money in there makes you feel like, like my kids do with a piggy bank. I mean, this is right. I've got this. Oh, guess what? It's getting really big. I can now buy something cool. So, but the problem that I've had is that I can't get many fundraisers to understand that the donor we just described, $500 a month and, and, and $6,000 a year is, is not a $500 donor, does not become in your $500 category. Right, right. Let's say you're one to, to nine, you know, to, to a thousand, that donor should be in the one to $10,000, the five right. to $10,000 category. I, I, I just can't get people to buy it. I, I think they just don't trust in it or something like that, but I think it's a little bit crazy. I, I, Lisa, so right before the pandemic, I was speaking to a group in, uh, out in the Chicago suburbs and it was about a hundred fundraisers and it's the fundraisers who probably look at you as funny as they might would have. They all probably looked at me as funny as they might be looking at you when you're saying this. But I said, all of you are going to like totally freak out when you actually feel like you have to take a donor out for a cup of coffee or take them out for lunch to secure a $500 gift. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. We're talking about a donor who on a monthly basis might be only contributing say $500, but on an annual basis, once that intentionality and that deliberateness or what this author calls earmarking gets factored into this, we're talking about a donor who's a much more serious donor. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, this, this kind of very intriguing conversation. How would each of you sort of, we, we usually lose our listeners at about 45 minutes in. Can each of you sort of summarize your thoughts on this conversation? And then, uh, and then as you're concluding, just let people know how they can find you and we'll put your uh, contact information in the show notes. Go ahead, go we'll first? start with you. Sure. I think uh, earmarking just as a social explanation of consumer behavior is really powerful in this space. And I think donor advice funds is a perfect example where we see that play out clear preference for it. I think the space is growing, you know, 20 to 40% a year, depending on what part of the industry you look super fast is the point. Um, and the share of total giving that's going through donor advice funds is increasing every year. And I think it's because of the behavioral power of donor advice funds. It's a preferred way to give. And I think as Lisa uh, alluded to, there are many, many parts of this that should be greatly encouraged and should be an encouragement to fundraisers if they can get in front of it and not sort of behind it. Um, and all of it stems from a place of donors wanting to experience more purposefulness and inspiration and relationship in their giving. And that's the reason, in my opinion, they're shifting into donor advice funds. That's the biggest thing that's pushing is they believe with a donor advice fund, they can have a lot more of it in the future than without it. And I think that should be a, an encouragement and sort of for fundraisers to double down. So we're really excited about the future of donor advice funds, obviously. Don't have to tell you that. Um, you can find us at charityvest.org. 
And anybody can open a donor advice fund with us for free. It takes about 30 to 60 seconds. Super simple. And our minimum contribution is 20 bucks. So it's accessible wow. to anybody. And then, of right. course, we're, um, we handle everything from illiquid gifts to appreciated stock and cryptocurrency as well. So we try to um, address any type of donor on our platform. You get the last word, Lisa. Okay. Well, I, I think that I will look forward to a day when everybody, okay, before I, I'm going to back this up with, I have five children who all have donor advised funds and my kids, my youngest kids started them when they were five and they're now 16 and they completely understand what the donor advised fund is. So I know other people can understand it too. And I look forward to a day where everybody has a donor advised fund. That doesn't mean they have to do all their giving through it, but everybody has a donor advised fund. It's like the old fashioned savings account, but it's all already earmarked for charity. It's already there. And we get to look at it. You can even do that at the end of the year and say, guess what? Let's look at the end of the year and see all of these solicitations. What do we want to do this, this coming year? What do we want to achieve? And you can say that with your kids. And I would like to have a place where I can give a birthday present in the form of money that goes into my friend's donor advised fund, which is, I don't know if that exists yet, but, uh, but that would be, uh, we just have to take our negative uh, feelings about donor advised funds and, and realize that they actually help, uh, as Stephen said, they help the pie get bigger. They help people understand and enjoy giving more. And they're a really great vehicle for us for the future of our sector. Oh, and people can reach me at lisagreer.com, L-I-S-A-G-R-E-E-R.com. Uh, my book is Philanthropy Revolution. My blog is philanthropy451.com because I think philanthropy is on fire. And uh, I hope that you will join me. Uh, Lisa and Stephen, I consider you friends. I appreciate the ongoing conversation. You're always both more than more than willing to engage in my theorizing and, and trying to make uh, fundraising a more practical, uh, making it more accessible for our fundraising professionals. I appreciate you being with me here today. You're always welcome back. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. That's awesome. And you can totally give a birthday gift through Charity Vest of Charitable Woo-hoo! Funds. So hey, it exists. <laughs> Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.